What's going on, everybody? This is Ryan Henry, and welcome to 180, where we get to share amazing stories of Christian transformation from around the world. These stories will literally blow your mind. Follow us on your favorite podcast player, or you can visit us at 180podcast.com. That's O-N-E-80podcast.com. Sometimes our greatest acts of evangelism are praying, just simple acts of obedience. Just doing what God asks of us, quiet time on a beach. We don't even know the impact that we might be making. But David Sadiq was watching that man on the beach with intrigue, and seeds were planted. He got up the courage to ask, and his life was changed forever, his and his family's lives. Welcome to David's 180. Coming all the way today from South Africa, we have David Sadiq. David, we are so glad that we have you today. Welcome. It's great to be with you guys, and I'm actually looking forward to sharing my story. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just really excited to have you here. We like to start our show, David, with a kind of a random question. If you could travel to any other place in the world, where would you like to travel? I would say South Korea, because I've had the opportunity to work with missionaries from South Korea. I had the privilege of leading most of the mission work that they did back in Ghana, and I also served there as a junior pastor. So I developed a strong passion for ministering to Korean community. Very cool. Well, let's get into your story, David. We want to take our listeners all the way back into the very beginnings of your life, kind of paint a picture of what that was like. So could you tell us, where did you grow up? I was born in Ghana, in West Africa. One of the provinces in Ghana is called Ashanti region. It's down in the southern part of Ghana. That's where I was born and raised. So what was your family life like growing up? I grew up in a little town called Offenso. So I was born there, grew up there among other siblings. It's home that have a lot of children that most of them are not my parents' biological children. So we have so many in the compound where you can't even tell the difference as to who is the biological child and who is not. My father, he is highly respected in the community. So people wish for him to raise their kids, their children. Wow. Parents will bring their children to my father and say, I would prefer my child to grow up in your household. So because of that, we end up having a lot of children that are not directly my parents' kids. But then my father have to raise all of us together under the same rules and instructions. Wow. You always had somebody to play with, I bet. Yes. Wow. I can't even imagine that. My father, he is a community leader. People have issues. They all come to him for counseling and reconciliations and stuff like that. So our house is almost always busy. And having to grow up among kids that are not your biological siblings also is more challenging because you have to share everything with everyone. It is not like when you have a nuclear family where you have your parents to yourself. And not to say that we did not experience fatherly or motherly love. We did experience all of that. But it's just that you have to share them with everybody else. Can you talk to us about what your faith was like growing up? Growing up in an Islam community, and especially being my father's son, 
a lot is expected from us. We have to outshine the rest to follow the patterns of my father. He is such a helper. He is so generous. And also he hates violence and he's always up for making peace with everyone. And whenever there is a misunderstanding or problems or whatever, he will be the first to be there and try to make peace with everybody in the community. When you are my father's child, especially in Arabic school, you cannot make mistakes. You cannot not know to recite the Quran or whenever there is a quiz or a test or something at school, Arabic school, we are always set aside because you are my father's son. So you expected to be smart. You expected to know more about the Quran, Hadith, the Torah and all that. No pressure. Yes. And my father is also keen on passing on those legacies to us as his children, because we have to leave his legacy and we have to also portray what he stands for. That is what the community and everybody else who knows my father expected of us. I cannot be second place. I have to always be in the first place. Whenever there's an exams or test or anything of such, if I come second, it's like I have failed. So it's a lot of pressure growing up in our household, not just from my father, but from the community and from people at large. I have to live up to my father's standard and to the community's expectation of me as well. I have to be very, very devoted. I was pressured to study hard, to study more than my peers because I needed to prove not just to my father, but also to the community at large. When people from Saudi Arabia and all that visit our community, I'll be the first person to be introduced to them and I'll end up showing them around and helping them to be familiarized with our culture and tradition and stuff like that. So I became more of a favorite in terms of being in front of most of the things that we do. Like even when we go our school, Arabic school, from school to school, like sort of challenge quiz and stuff. I usually been chosen to be the leader of my group. So it's sort of pushed me to be more committed and more zealous in terms of my Islamic religion. What was um, your view of God growing up and even your view of Jesus? Had you heard the name before? What were your thoughts? God is supreme. God is supernatural. God is the ultimate. I dare not compare him with anybody or with any other God. So fear of God really resonated in my heart at that time because of the way I see him, the way I imagine God to be. God is so big. He is so supreme to the extent that he cannot be compared, you know, to any other. I live my life studying all the time and I live my life trying to prove. And that led me to be more of challenging Christianity and especially you don't tell me you're a Christian. The minute you tell me you're a Christian, I jump into argument and debate with you because I believe so much that I am on the right path. If you're not an Islam Muslim, you're not. Later on, I realized why I had to study that deep. The sad part of Muslims is that most people just got converted to Islam and they don't even understand every word the Quran says. They only recite it but they don't really understand what it means. But for me, I was privileged enough to study to an extent where I can understand exactly what the Quran says, what the Surah says, whether it makes sense or it doesn't make sense, whether they're talking about something reasonable or not. 
you'll be amazed to note that in most cases where Muhammad referred to Jesus at Masih, in Arabic, when they say Masih means the Messiah, but it's only Jesus that was referred to as the Messiah in the Quran. And among so many other revelations where Muhammad himself declared Jesus as, as, as Messiah and as also somebody who can answer certain difficult questions that his disciples bring before him. Yes, to we were meant to believe that he is just a prophet, but one prophet, because Muhammad is the last prophet to come. But then for me, I kept on asking, well, if you call someone Messiah, even Muhammad himself dare not call himself a Messiah. Yet he referred to Isa, Jesus, as Messiah. So I wondered who he might be, who he really is, but I haven't really given it a thought because for the Quran, he is just a prophet. He was one of the prophets who came and died, according to them. And then Muhammad is like the last concealed prophet, the last prophet. So I haven't really gave much thoughts about who he really is or who I haven't really classified him at that time. I saw that even at a young age, you had led prayer at the mosque. What was that like? Actually, I was at the age of 16 when I started to lead prayers. I became a scholar at the age of 16. By then, I was already ordained as imam where I lead prayers. I also lead the Arabic school that was open there. I was a mudaris, like a teacher at that age. What happened to get your views to start to change? So I start to question, is this really what, what I want to do? Is this really what I want to follow? Certain things in the Quran, most of the time you read the Quran, it's direct to, to the Bible. I came to realize that in the Quran, even Muhammad was taught by Christians. There was a time when he was escaping and he found refuge among the Christians. Then when he came back, he started claiming that he's getting some callings and visions and, and stuff like that. Then I begin to kind of ask questions because there are so many times when the disciples go to him and ask him questions, he refer them to the people of the book. And in the Quran, when they say people of the book, it meant Christianity. So that was where my question started. Oh my gosh. You'd be amazed to find out that most of the disciples approached him with difficult questions. He would not be able to answer them. He would refer them to the people of the book, the Christians. There's a lot of Bible in the Quran I did not mean that it's quoted exactly as it's quoted in the Bible. Basically, if you read the Bible or the Quran, you notice that most of the things that Muhammad was talking about is driven from the Bible. It is something that was inspired by somebody who have read the Bible and then made, they make it their own. You know, so the Quran is not exactly like as quoted in the Bible, but he sort of is twisted it to suit what he wants his believers to hear. This, for me, this is a religion or a book that I trusted so much into being a solution to all my questions. And rather, I noticed that, you know, even he himself does not have the answers to most of the difficult questions or most of the situations that we go through as human. So for him to be referring his disciples to the people of the book simply tells me that he does not have answers. He does not have all the answers to 
what I want or what I'm looking for. So in other words, he also needs help, just like myself. I want more than just somebody or leader who will be referring me to another source for solution. So if these are the people that you are referring me to, then I have to look for them and start listening to them instead. I questioned a lot, you know, until I moved to the city. You know, when I moved to the city, I enrolled myself in school, in a normal school where they teach English, life skills. So I did not know much about Christianity. Yet I actually left from because I was not allowed to study English. I was not allowed to go to a normal English school because, like I said, it was forbidden. According to our parents and our leaders in Islam, once we start learning English and being exposed to the Western culture, then we begin to question. So, like back then, at, at that, around about that same age, 16, I started to wonder. I've always wanted to know more. So, and for me, not being allowed to, in fact, the local government on several occasions have made an attempt to introduce English language into the Arabic school. And it's been, you know, denied so many, you know, several, the same, like the leaders don't, don't want it. And the only reason at that time they gave us is, is, is that, you know, it's once we're exposed to English language and the Western culture and stuff like that, then we'll begin to question Islam and all, you know, then I said, well, why are you worried about, you know, us questioning it? So I then started to say, no, if I'm not allowed to go to school, English school in that community, then I have to move. So that was what prompted me to leave and went to my elder brother in the city. Mm -hmm. And part of the other questions that even get me more confused is after I have a numerous conversation with Christians. And I begin to hear the views of being a Christian. It's totally different from being a Muslim because being a Muslim, like you don't have a breathing space. You know, there is no freedom. There is no freedom to choose. With all the prayers we perform five times a day and all that with citation of Quran and everything, you know, yet still not guaranteed of heaven. That's a scary part of it. There has never been a moment where you are being guaranteed of heaven because you always and constantly have to work. You know, there is no guarantee. So you have to live your life in fear. And in Islam, they have many other ways of making people like qualifying to enter heaven. They put it like a bridge. The hellfire is underneath it and heaven is across the, the other side. So you have to walk on that tiny rope. While you're working on that rope, your sense determines whether you'll be able to walk without it breaking for you to fall into hell. So in other words, how much sin you have determines. And if you have a lot of sin in you, that sin weighs you down and breaks the rope. And that is your judgment. So basically, that is the way we were taught to believe. Which would explain so much of the fear. You live in total fear. You can do right in the morning and in the afternoon when you do even one wrong thing and die. There's no guarantee that you go into heaven. Unlike in Christianity, you know, we, we know and we can confidently, you know, and proudly say today that angels will be rejoicing in heaven because, you know, he's going home or she's going home, you know, but you can't say the same when you're a Muslim. It makes me start to question a whole lot. Because whenever you talk to Christians, they have this amazing confidence. 
they have this unique conviction that they, they are candidates of heaven. And here you are, you've been zealous all your life. You live your life in a very careful way, not to do anything wrong, not to make any mistakes, not to sin, and yet you are not assured. You don't even have that half of the confidence that the Christians do have when it comes to heaven. That was when I started to study more and more the Bible and compare it to the Quran. And then a whole lot of things start to make sense in the Bible than it does in the Quran. Hmm. Okay, what happened? So basically for me to be that confused, that was where I started walking down to the ocean, to the beach. I needed to be in a quiet space where I can just talk to God and meditate and look for the truth. I only got introduced to the Bible for a couple of months. And already the Bible is making more sense to me than the Quran does all my life. So that made me ask questions like, you know, just asking God if he really, really, truly who he is. I want to know him. I want to follow him. I want to do what he want me to do. But here I am confused between the Bible and the Quran. Deep in my heart, I know that the Bible makes more sense to me than the Quran does. So if the Bible is what he want me to follow, I'm more than ready. You know, I asked God to show me the truth about who he is and if there's anything else he want me to know. Wow. But I thought I was the only one walking down the beach looking for a quiet moment with God and admiring the view of the ocean, the natural beauty of God's creations and all. And that was where I noticed that I wasn't the only one. I've been having a company all along. I noticed an obroni. Obroni means white man. The first morning... I saw him there. I don't know what he was meditating or what his mission there was. So the first day I let him go. The second day, the third day, I got the courage to walk up to him. Because for us, what we know is that it's not easy for a white man to trust a total stranger walking up to him. They will do everything possible to avoid the person. But in this case, he was still standing while I tried to walk up to him. So let me just get this straight. So you're in Ghana, you're going to the beach every morning, and you're having this question, God, there's more that I need to know, show it to me. And you're noticing that there's a white man who is coming out there alone, and it's kind of like, what is going on with this guy? You finally gained the courage. How did you actually start talking to him, and what did he say? When I got there, he was the first person to wave and say hello, and then I said hello back, and he instantly introduced himself to me. My name is Michael, and then I also introduced myself to him. So he asked me, what am I doing here? I also asked him, what are you doing here? Then he started talking about he's a Christian, he's a missionary. He came all the way from America with his family to the coming day here to share the love of God. And so I was like, wow, this guy traveled all this far just to come and talk about Jesus? For me, that was like a real commitment. So we started that conversation, but not deeper. So that day we decided to go part ways, but I asked him if it's okay for us to meet again. He said, oh yeah, sure, why not? We can meet the same place at the same time. I said, okay. So that was how it continued. We met for a couple of times and then he opted to take me to meet the rest of the family. And I said, okay. When he took me to the house, they were all welcoming and they were all amazing. They all introduced themselves to me. And that moment, I felt like there's no discrimination. 
for us, usually you can tell these people are a little bit of resentment, but they never show any sign of that. I mean, they're so welcoming and all that. And in fact, the amazing part was also that same morning they invited me for breakfast. After that, we started meeting at home. And throughout this, while he never tried to introduce Jesus to me, the only time he mentioned Jesus was when he was introducing himself and the reason why they in Ghana. So all along, we've been having a normal conversation and we became very good friends. And one of the things that I appreciate was there, especially with Michael, he accepted me for who I am. That's amazing. Did that catch you by surprise? The fact that they, they weren't trying to convert you. They just were loving you and showing you the love of God. Absolutely. You know, he related to me as a Muslim, not as somebody who wants me to be a Christian before he can relate to me. He tried to let me see how much God loves me and how much he wants to make difference in my life, but not like to impose Christianity on me. And the rest of the family were also the same. Hey friends, make sure to share 180 with your people. It may be the best news they hear today. Now, back to the show. They invite me to go out for lunch with them, usually on Sundays, and we'll go and have amazing lunch. We'll come back. There won't be any issue of like, hey, David, so when are you going to give your life to Christ? It's always been just a normal relationship that we've had. And throughout that period of time, he's never sat me down to want to evangelize me. So along, all I could see in them is a true reflection of Jesus' love. So that was what they always demonstrate to me. And for me, that was the biggest evangelism one can do. It's not the preaching, it's your lifestyle. They evangelized me through their lifestyle, through the way they related to me, and through the way they demonstrated the love of God. And that was how my heart started you know, melting. The conviction started from there because I began to wonder, so if I become a Christian, this is the kind of lifestyle I'm going to live. I'm going to be filled with such love because there's always love in the house. There's always love in their faces and everything they do, you see the love of God. And the other amazing part of what I always remember is that once in a while, Michael would just look at me and say, hey, buddy, Jesus loves you. And I said, really? So yeah, he loves you so much. And then sometimes we'll be sitting in groups and then he'll look at us and he ask the rest of the team, who loved David? And then they all raise their hands like, I do, I do, you know? So like love is like everywhere and there's nothing like experiencing the love of Jesus through his followers. This amazing family made me see and experience the love of God even before I gave my life to Christ. And for me, that was the genesis of a greater love that has been embedded in my heart. Well, you know, whenever I talk about Jesus, sometimes I get emotional. Who am I? That he loved me so much. And for me, that love started from there. That was where I started experiencing that love. So how did you, how did you go kind of from this observer, kind of watching from the outside in, to actually becoming an actual Christ follower? Yeah, I think beside the fact that they were showering me with the love of God, Michael will ask me, David, I want you to pray for God to hear you. I want you to just talk to him. 
and ask him to show you the truth about who he is. So for me to even start learning how to pray in that way was through him. Because for me, I know you can only pray by going to the mosque. But now he taught me how I can even pray in my bed by just talking to God. And I learned to do that. And I learned to ask God sincerely and honestly to show me the truth about who he is. Mm -hmm. So the more they do and the more they show their love to me, the more I also pray harder. I remember one Saturday night, I'm not sure that it was a vision or it was a dream. I found myself standing isolated in a plain place where I saw this bright light, you know, a real bright light, very bright, you know, shining right in front. And I was standing there staring at that bright light. I don't know whether I was scared or what, but then the voice just told me to walk towards the light. A still tiny voice just whispering in a sweet way, just walk towards the light. Just keep walking. Don't look back. And then I obeyed. I started just walking. And the amazing part, you know, you felt that sensation of relief the minute I walked through the light. Though I could not see anything, but I could feel that sensation of relief and like a weight being lifted. And I felt so light, you know. And all of a sudden, I found myself in a new dimension of faith altogether. So I woke up late that Sunday morning, and the first thing that came to my mind was I was excited to rush to them and ask them I want to go to church with them. But I was late because they already left for church. That really hurt me so bad because I really wanted to go to church with them that morning. So when they came back, I told Michael about the vision or the dream that I had. So we went to a swimming pool for swim and lunch, as we usually do on Sundays. So I was in a swimming pool with Michael Van Hyde's were swimming, and I whispered in his ears. And I was like, hey, Michael, so I want to give my life to Christ. He couldn't believe it. He said, what? And I repeated again, I want to give my life to Christ. And he couldn't believe it. He really couldn't believe it. So actually, he led me to Christ in the swimming pool. <laughs> and then right there, he yelled out and spread the good news to the rest. And like, there was excitement all over. It was really a great Sunday. I remember they were singing throughout the drive back home. The car was filled with excitement and joy. It was such an amazing moment for me. What did you finally then see clearly about Jesus? What was the truth that you got? Like I said, you know, through the Thompsons and the Van Heises, and through the way they demonstrated the love of God and the true identity of who God really is to me, made me begin to experience the mercy and the grace of God. I begin to have strong faith in God. I begin to experience His grace in my life because who was I? I was nobody. And these amazing people, they showered me with the love of God. And then I began to experience the merciful God that they were serving. So in my life, even before I gave my life to Christ, after I gave my life to Christ, they made an arrangement for me to be baptized. We went to the Atlantic Ocean where I got baptized by Michael Thompson and Michael Van Heys. When I was lifted out from the water, it's like you've been born again all over again. You became a new being. You know, I never felt the same 
person that I was before I went down into the water. Once you come out, you feel this incredible glow all over your face and the experience of knowing that now I'm a new creation in Christ. Now I'm accepted in the heavenly realms. That burden of guilt, burden of confusion and everything all got lifted up, you know, and I became very lighter. That was a complete turnaround in my life. And I will never, ever forget that experience. Oh, wow. That's really beautiful. You know, it's funny that you came to him and said, I want you guys to lead me to Christ. When in reality, they had already kind of done it just by the way that they were loving. And for those of you listening, if you haven't made the connection yet, this Michael Thompson is actually the founder of One Way Ministries, which hosts this podcast. So what else happened after you became a a Christ follower? How did that have an impact on your family? At that time, it was just me and the Van Heises and the Thompsons. It was later that I decided that I cannot keep this to myself any much longer. It wasn't easy because when I was leaving home, I know that my family were expecting me to further my quest for a more knowledge about Quran and all that. But my brother, sometime later, saw the sign in me because I started losing interest in Islam. I started losing interest in going to the mosque. I made all sorts of excuses to avoid going to the mosque and stuff like that. So he just didn't know what was going on until I decided I want to go and visit my parents. I remember Michael, Rachel, everybody, they were not happy about it. They were scared for me. It's like, are you sure it's a good idea? I said, well, I'm ready. If you could feel the excitement in me and how much I'm willing to share to the rest of the world about my new faith, I'm not afraid. I'm ready. I'm sure I'm ready to go. So it was a sad moment and a scary moment as such. But I think at that time I was filled with the Holy Ghost that I didn't even thought about the consequences and whatever I'm probably going to face. All I could see was Jesus. All I could see was the love of God in me. All I could see is that amazing strength and courage that he put in me. So I did went, and it wasn't easy. Most of the leaders in the community gathered in my house. And my father was more like the judge of the situation. One of my uncle had to travel all the way from Nigeria to come for that purpose. And so I was surrounded by all these people and everybody is trying to look so scary and mean for me to see how serious the situation is because I had to face them whether I like it or not. So they said, we've been hearing speculations. Your brother called us and told us he's doubting your faith in Islam. What is the truth? Well, I gave my life to Christ. And the room was silent for a minute. And before I could tell, the whole room was closing in on me. These people were like rising from left, right, center, and shouting, trying to grab me from the neck. I didn't know what to do. I was confused. And I could tell my mother was crying in the other room with the fear of not knowing what is going to happen to me. So all I could hear was this yelling and screaming and shouting and swearing at me and my father. And then suddenly everybody became quiet. And he said, everybody sit down and be quiet. 
So they all sat back and they were quiet. And then my father looked at me and he asked, did you just told us you gave your life to Christ? I said, yes, I did. Does that mean you are now a Christian? Are you a follower of Jesus? I said, yes. What a testimony to the work of God in your life at that point to be able to take all that criticism and have all these people saying terrible things about you and just sit there and take it respectfully. Everybody was just staring at me and he was sitting there quiet for a while. And then I was surprised at his response. The first question he asked me, does that mean that you're going to hate us from now on? I said, never. I even love you guys more. I even developed more love for you now than I ever did. And he also asked me, does that mean that you're going to abandon us? We're not going to see you again. I said, no, we are still family. You're still my father. You're still my uncles. You're still my cousins. Nothing has changed. He said, are you sure? I said, yes. He also asked me whether I'll be visiting home. I said, definitely I will. I'll visit home more often. He said, am I sure? I said, yes. And then he turned to the rest of them and then he told them, well, if he had decided to choose his fate and his path, who are we to stop him? We should let him be. I looked at him and I didn't even know where that came from because they were all expecting him to do something drastic to me so they can follow suit. Instead, he calmed the situation. He asked me a couple of questions. Which I assured him that those fear that he had, he shouldn't worry about it. I'm still his son. I love them and I'll visit them. I'm not going to abandon them. And that was all he wanted to hear. Then he told them they should leave me alone. He said, from today on, I don't want anybody to question this young man or to talk about this ever again. And that command and instruction state, that is how much they respect him and obeyed him. I was so amazed. When I came back, <laughs> Rachel, she was my mom. She was the first person to rush to me. <laughs> and hug me and be sure I'm okay. They asked me, did they do anything to you? Did they beat you? I said, no. I explained everything and they were so amazed. And right there, Michael just said, let's bow our heads and pray. And we stood and we, we thank God for everything. That was the beginning of my freedom. And now I know that God has done it. Jesus is truly the Savior. I never doubted my decision to follow Jesus. And I never look back because the minute I made that decision to follow Jesus, there's this sense of boldness and courage that came on me that I could not even think of what any other person would say. All I wanted to hear or talk about is the excitement of being a follower of Jesus. Now, did your family, did anybody ever come to Christ? Yes. A year or so after I gave my life to Christ, Michael and the rest of the team left Ghana back to the States. And before Michael left Ghana, the birth of One Way Ministries was already being discussed. So after they left, they came back as One Way Ministries. Part of what One Way Ministries does at that time was we go to the northern part of Ghana to do mission work, to do ministry and to share the gospel, to show Jesus for them, and then lead people to Christ. So that was what we were doing at that time. The main road the highway that linked to all the regions goes through my village. So I remember one of our trips to Kumasi, I suddenly went to Michael and said, I think I want to stop over and see my father. 
And I said, are you sure? I said, yes, okay, I'll go with you. I said, what? He said, oh, yes, I'm ready. I'll go with you. I'll go meet your father. I said, oh, that would be amazing. So when we got to our village, uh, we walked in and my father came and met me and, you know, Michael introduced himself to him. So Michael said, I want to tell you a story. He said, okay. So Michael started to tell him about the story about Jesus. And he was so attentive to that. He listened to everything. And I was translating everything back to him. So when Michael finished and said, can I pray with you? He said, yes. So Michael and I and Pastor Way, we all bowed our heads. And he did the same. And then we prayed. When we finished praying, Michael said, there's a request he wants to ask him. And my father was looking at Michael. And then I explained to him. I said, he asked if you're ready to give your life to Christ. And then he asked me, is it the same thing that I did? I said, yes, that was the same thing that I did. And he said, is that what he's asking him to do right now? I said, yes. And then he said, okay. I said, what? I was scared to ask him that question. But the Holy Spirit gave me the courage to actually ask him exactly the way Michael said it. And I asked him, and to my amazement, he said, yes. And Michael, his eyes went rolling. I was like, did he say yes? I said, yes. He just said yes. Did he mean he's willing? I said, yes. He said, yes. And then Michael asked him again, are you ready? I asked him, are you ready? He said, yes, he is. And Michael said, okay, then bow your head. And he did. Everything Michael said, he did. He followed. And to our amazement, that old man gave his life to Christ that night. And we left that place that night full of joy, full of excitement. Because for me, it was a dream come true. Wow, that is amazing. Did that have a ripple effect on your family after your dad? That was just the peak of it. You know, can you imagine after numerous of prayers and, you know, patience, endurance and everything later on about like so many years back, later on, to my amazement. My two brothers and sister actually gave their life to Christ. And just a couple of months after that, my mother also gave her life to Christ. Wow, what a beautiful, beautiful story. What would you say to others who are wondering and even afraid of searching for the real truth? For me, what I will say is that for somebody who is in search, what I can say to you, God is true and the love of God is definitely a reality not just hearsay. My advice for anyone is to pray the same prayer that I pray, just to ask God for who he really is. As a person, I think what we always have to do, if you are in search of faith and you want to know the truth about who God is, he will never hide himself from you. Just ask him. Ask him the truth about who he is. Just experience his love in your life. And because giving your life to Christ gives you a peace of mind, it lifts you up. It lifts up your burden and then off your shoulder and also makes you become lighter. I also think that part of what we believers around the world should also do is to pray for the lost ones, pray for the sinners so that they will also come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because we cannot just enjoy the love of God alone. We also ought to share it to the others, to other people, so that they will also come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and give their lives to Christ. Because that is the commandment that we're given. That's a commission. Every believer to me is commissioned to do that. When you pray, 
make sure the prayer comes from your heart. Just talk to him deep down from your heart because the Bible says that a fervent prayer that comes from the heart reaches up to heaven. Wow, that's so good. And that reminds me to tell our listeners about One Way Ministries' amazing tool called PrayerCast, which basically is just so many videos that lead you in praying for people of different cultures, different faiths. And I know David has done some work on PrayerCast with video editing. So check that out. It's an amazing resource that we have, and you would definitely be blessed in that. So David, man, I'm just so touched by your story. Thank you so much for joining us today. So, man, it's been great talking to you. It's been amazing having this chat with you. And I really appreciate the fact that you gave me this opportunity to share my story with the rest of the world. Thank you so much. Yeah. Amen. Today's send-off features a project David Sadiq worked on for One Way, an inspiring video highlighting the Jesus film writers who take the gospel to remote parts of Ghana, like the village David himself came from. Listen in and then watch the video by using the link in our show notes. And if you like today's 180, please leave us a review. We have a video in our show notes on how to do that. In the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with us now and forevermore. Surely, His goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life, and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. The nations are ready. The nations are ready. The nations are ready. Armed with their motorbikes, a projection kit, and the Holy Spirit, these five young men ride across remote parts of Ghana, West Africa, spreading the good news of Christ. They must be willing to go anywhere, sleep anywhere, and eat anything. They are known as the Jesus Film Riders. Though they are college grads, the Jesus Film Riders have chosen to forego a typical marketplace career. Instead, they are dedicating several years of their lives to telling their countrymen about Jesus as part of One Way Africa's Jesus Film Campaign. I ride for the glory of God is their motto. I've been inspired by St. Francis of Assisi spreading the gospel to places that were dangerous to his life. And so it inspires me to know that uh, I can also do something for God and my life. Jesus Christ has given us the commandment that we should all go into the world. Matthew chapter 20 verses 18 to 20. So that's why I do this. The greatest gift anyone could have is to have Jesus. And since there are a lot of people without Jesus, I feel it's my responsibility to let them know about him. I have that passion and the, the, the desire to share the gospel to everyone, everywhere. I ride for the glory of God. I ride for the glory of God. One Eighty is a production of One Way Ministries.